Let's get to a couple of things. First of all, there's an election Tuesday, and, and people, I think, sometimes wish I would say more about politics than I do in elections. Um, so let me say this. Elections are important. We should apply the mind of Christ to everything in our lives, okay? We have an obligation to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? We love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love our neighbors as ourselves. And that works itself out by, for Americans, for U.S. Americans, sorry, my Honduran brothers, I know you're Americans too, um, but we get to vote and they actually count them. I, I don't want to get into all that. They don't do it the right way in Honduras. Anyway, um, so it's important. You have an obligation to yourself, to your family, to your neighbors, um, to, to go and do what the mind of Christ leads you to do. We should be acting and thinking consistently with Scripture when it comes to elections. Okay, so there's my thing on elections. Do, do the right thing. Go and do the right thing. And, um, you know, that means read the Scriptures, understand them, think through them. But here's the thing. No election, no election is more important than Jesus Christ, His church, our worship, and the Great Commission, all of the Great Commission, right? That we make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded for lo, he's with us always, even to the end of the age, amen, right? That's, the, that's on the wall out there. No election, that every election, by the way, just so you know, and it's been, I don't know how many years this has been happening now, but every election, just so you're aware now, so you don't have to read the tweet, is the most important election of our lifetimes, okay? Democracy is at stake, we're all going to die. You know, you're going to hear that about everything, okay? And it's true. You're all going to die unless the Lord comes back first, which I'm hoping he will. All of you will die. Some of you sooner than others, from what I can see, from where I'm standing. Um, just say, some of you are old. That's all I'm saying. And some of you are young. I mean, it's just likely. Right? It's just odds. I'm going to get canceled. So it's been a good seven years. No, I'm just So don't get your priorities wrong. Don't get your priorities wrong. What you're doing right now is far more important than what any secular government will do in any election. You bringing the gospel to your neighbors, to your family, to your friends is far more important and far more likely to affect your city, your town, your neighborhood than any election, especially federal elections, are ever going to do. It is the gospel that's important. I am not saying that elections and that kind of thing is important. They are. You got to do the right thing. But when we get that in the wrong priority, we start to get in the state of kind of fear, anger, despair. I see a lot of that because we get, we get lost between these two things. Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Nothing is going to change that. The world is going to get worse. Okay. If you're wondering, like, are we going to make it better? No, you're not going to make it better. You do your best you do your best to advocate for the right things because that's what we do. We're salt and light. But it is not overall going to get better and better and better. And then Jesus is going to be like, well, they've pretty much got it good. I guess I'll come back now. They figured it all out. That's not how it works. There's actually a theology out there that believes that. It is utter nonsense. There's nothing biblical about that. It's going to go down. We're going to get taken. Okay. We're going to get raptured. And then it's going to get real bad. Okay. But not for us. Not if you're saved. So, just get your priorities right. That's all I'm saying. Let's keep our priorities right. That's my thing on elections. That's as political as I've gotten in I don't know how long. Of course, everything I say is political, which is to say everything that we, that we read in the scriptures can be applied to all the areas of your life. Your work, your relationships, your marriages, your children, everything that you do, how much money you spend, where you spend it. Speaking of which, 
Let's get the giving up. I don't say that in seven years. I have almost never talked about giving, but I do have to tell you now, we do need it to go up. Uh, it's been a rough year for everyone. Uh, inflation, all the rest of that. Don't talk to me about elections. I don't want to hear about inflation. It's a reality. Whoever's fault it is. I think it's my dad's fault personally. <laughs> but he's going to Hawaii and stuff. I mean, you're going to, he doesn't think, you know? Anyway. It has been a rough time for most people, but it's been a rough time financially for the church as well. We're used to getting a number of uh, extra gifts that we have not gotten this year. Um, I think because of people's concerns about financial stuff. But what that means is that we are at a pretty good shortfall that we need to make up by the end of the year. Um, and so just letting you guys know that I come to you because we're the church. If you have an extra, I don't know, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars each. No, I wouldn't need we don't, like 10,000 each would work. No, I'm kidding. We don't have that either. It's not that bad. But, but we, do need to, we do need to be thinking very seriously about our giving. Make sure that you're being faithful and honoring God in that. And that's all I'm going to say about that right now. Unless it gets worse, then I'll come back and talk about it more. And I'm not really big on talking about a lot of that because people go, all they talk about is money. Yeah, go watch seven years of me talking. You'll hear almost nothing about money. So we don't even pass a thing around. Like there's a box back there, you know? We're not, we're not in anybody's face, just so we're clear. But the giving needs to go up. I'm trusting you guys. I've given you now the knowledge that you need about that. And if you have questions, ask somebody else. All right. No, I'm kidding. You can ask me. Um, we've been doing a series talking about the Ligonier Ministries State of Theology Survey, okay? And we did four of them. And here's the thing. I wanted to take a chance to, before we get through any further, because the whole point of this thing was that the people in the church have been so confused on these issues. You've seen how many of them people just got wrong. I want to give you guys the opportunity before I go to the second part of this series to ask any questions that you have. Can you put up the thing that shows that? There it is. There's a number. There's a phone number. You text that number. Start texting now. Any questions you have, I'm going to read all the things that we've gone through real quick so that you can think, oh yeah, I had a question about that one. Okay, any questions on these things? These were the statements and then the correct answers. I'll, I'll give the statement and the correct answer just quickly here of all the ones we've gone over in the four weeks. You ready? Here we go. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth to which we strongly disagree. Okay, but maybe you have some questions about that um, that, that weren't answered during the, during the study we did on that. Next, God accepts the worship of all religions including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Strongly disagree, okay? Christianity and Christ is exclusive. And I know we don't like that in our society. I know. Exclusive, how do you know that you're right? I do. Because all the evidence is there. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So no, you cannot do it another way, okay? Strongly disagree that Jesus accepts the worship of all religions. I mean, some religions are crazy. You've seen that. You guys have watched the Discovery Channel. That's crazy. Anyway, next. God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. Strongly agree. Necessarily true if he's God, okay? Uh, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Strongly disagree. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He can't. If he did, he wouldn't be perfect. What would he change for? Perfect to perfecter? It's not even a word, people. All right, let's go on. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. No, Jesus is God. Okay, eternally begotten of the Father. He's always been. There's never a time when Jesus, or let me say that differently. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem, okay? The Son of God has always been, which of course is Jesus. It's, all, it's complicated, but the bottom line is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have always existed, always, okay? So we strongly disagree that he was created by God. Next, Jesus was a great teacher, but was not God. <laughs> strongly disagree. The Holy Spirit is a force, but it's not a personal being. Strongly disagree. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's a personal being. You have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's in you if you're a Christ follower, okay? Every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. Strongly agree. Oh, well, that favors you. No, it's just in the Bible. And with some of you, it doesn't favor me. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I said I love all of you. Worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. <laughs> Strongly disagree, okay? Those were the ones we looked at, okay? We looked at all people, sort of the United States in general. They did, you know, all of them and what they said. Then we looked at evangelicals, which are people who believe certain things or go to churches that believe certain things. And then evangelicals who attend a church once a week. And many, many, many of them got some of these questions very, very, very wrong. Meaning that probably some of us are confused about those things. And so you have the opportunity to, um, to text me questions. I actually have a number of questions from the last time we did one of these that I may get to if you guys don't ask enough questions. And so let me pull up my little thing here and see if anything's coming through. All right, I'm gonna give you the time it takes to drink this water to text your questions in. Ready, go. All right. Hey, I got a couple. Uh, this one says, warning, political. Go figure. Should we work with our vote to achieve a state of theonomy? All right, exactly. I'll tell you what theonomy is. So, there are a group of, of Christians who I think probably are real Christians who have a, a vision or a view, a theology of the end times, of the end of the age, that is just scripturally wrong, it's wrong-headed, it doesn't make any sense, and there's no evidence that it's true, but here's what it is. I talked about it sort of a second ago, which is the idea that we will, as the church, essentially take over all governments and institute, the, let's just call it theocracy. You know that word, right? That God will be in control and we will run, and, and a lot of these guys want to actually run things with the Old Testament laws. They, they want to bring that back. It doesn't work. It's not what God intended. Um, and no, you should not be trying to achieve a state of theonomy. If you want to do that, here's the problem. Here's the basic problem in this country with trying to institute Christianity in the government where the, where the government makes everybody be Christians. All it takes is enough of something else, which if you look at these stats that we're looking at, we're moving in that direction to where they want to institute something else and make you worship some other God. Okay, So if we want to make everybody worship Jesus by force with guns, essentially, that's what the government is. They're the people who, if you don't do what they say, they have guns. That's what the government is, right? You don't want the, you don't want theonomy because then what happens when the Muslims vote for theonomy or the Mormons vote for theonomy or whoever gets bigger votes for that. Now you're forced with a gun to worship some other God. Bad idea. This is the reason why we have the First Amendment in this country is to protect us from each other. At the end of the day, most of the stuff our government has done has been about protecting us from each other. Hasn't always worked, but it's worked better than anybody else's so far. In, in, in many ways. All right. I don't want to really get into to that, but yeah, bad, bad idea. Theonomy, bad idea. All right, let's see what's next. Um, if Jesus was Jewish, how is Judaism wrong? 
Well, because he was a Christian. Yeah, he's Christ, so. Um, Judaism is not wrong. It's not that Judaism is wrong. Judaism is, is just not caught up to what's happened, that the Messiah has come. Okay? It's not that Judaism by itself, Jesus was Jewish, it was Judaism. The problem is that Judaism had the Messiah come, the prophecies fulfilled, and Jesus fulfilled them and established his church. And, and those who are still doing the Judaism thing that you know as Judaism, like Orthodox Judaism now, they reject Jesus. So the reason Judaism is wrong isn't that Judaism is wrong, which is just the Old Testament. It's that they don't have the New Testament and they reject Jesus. So if you're wondering about that, why, why a person who's like, I'm an Orthodox Jew, uh, I, you know, so I reject the Messiah, I reject Jesus, I don't believe that, Though, those people who say that are wrong. We are, at the end of the day, as, Christ, as Christ followers, we are Jews. We're grafted in to God's chosen people. Okay, we'll get into that when we get into Romans, uh, the next couple chapters of Romans. We are, we are uh, heirs of the faith of Judaism. It's just that Judaism didn't stop at the end of the Old Testament. Judaism was just God. Jews are just God's chosen people who he revealed the scriptures to and continue to do so. In fact, all of the first disciples were Jews. All of these people who you read about at the beginning of Acts, they're all Jews. It wasn't just Jesus who was a Jew. They were all Jews. Christianity came out of Judaism. Of course it would because the Messiah came to the Jews, right? And then to the Gentiles. Those of you who aren't Jewish, he came to you after the Jews, right? Jews first, then the Gentiles. So at some level, you are, you are heirs of Judaism. But those who are, say, I'm Jewish and I reject Jesus are wrong because they reject Jesus. So just so we're clear about that on Judaism. What else? Reckless love question. If God is perfect, how can his love be reckless? Okay. This is one of those like, yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, there are, I don't sing that song a lot. Um, it's kind of played out at this point. Of course, we play some other songs that are played out. But if I like them, we're going to play them, okay? That's how, no, I'm kidding. If I think you'll like them, we play them. Uh, if I think it'll help us to worship. Uh, so there's a song called Reckless Love, though if you could not heard it, it's like, oh, the overwhelming reckless love of God. You know, it's really good how I just did it right there. But anyway, the idea that God's love is reckless. Okay, it all depends on how you define reckless. Okay, in the law, we have definitions, and this is on the civil side. We have negligence, recklessness, and intent. Negligence is you are acting in a way that a reasonably prudent person wouldn't act. So we have this imaginary person that's prudent and prudent in all they do, right? Makes good decisions. And you're acting in a way that that imaginary person wouldn't. That's negligence. Recklessness is like, I'm not concerned about how this is going to affect anybody else, okay? And, and I think that if you take that definition, you go, Christ, the God, does not have to be concerned about how much love he gives, he can give love recklessly because it could never cause harm, right? So if you, if you understand recklessness as, I'm not worried about the consequences of my love. I'll give all the love without ever worrying about the consequences. That would be God's reckless love. It sounds like a negative because in the law, normally, if you're reckless, you're in trouble. In this case, though, no one's ever, just so you know, no one has ever been convicted for reckless love. It's not what they're, I wish I had a, a client where that was the case. No, it was reckless love that they're accusing me of like, well, that's great. It's never happened. You can be reckless with love. You can be reckless with love too. You don't, if you're loving, you don't have to worry about the consequences of it. So that's reckless love. I hope that helps. Um, it does sound negative. So I get why people would think like, well, God's not reckless as if it was like a negative thing. 
he's not, technically he's not reckless, but the way we would use that word, he's not concerned about the consequences of love. He's, it's all there. He is love. All right. So that one's done. What else do we got here? If God is perfect, okay, this is one from the thing. If God is perfect in knowing and wisdom, which he is, why not let God himself decide what worship is good instead of questioning the worship of other people's religions? Good question. And here's the answer to it. Because he's told us. That's why. I, of course, I'm letting him decide it. I'm, I don't get to decide who's worship. People aren't worshiping me, nor should they. Not a worshipable person. When people are worshiping a God that's not God, he has told us clearly in his word. And when he came as Christ, he's told us clearly about who is to be worshiped. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He clearly was against the idolatry that was going on in the first century. The Old Testament is very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. No one, you can worship no one. No idol, no foreign god, none of that. God was very, very clear. So it's not that we are, because the, the idea here is that we are questioning other people. So I'm not questioning them. God has said clearly, and I'm simply doing what God says. So when I say, if you're a Muslim, you don't worship Jesus Christ. You just don't. I'm saying that because it's a fact. You don't worship Jesus Christ. And Jesus has said, worship me and no one else. That's what God has, God has said this. Now, I think the comeback to that, to be fair to somebody who might ask this question, is, okay, well, how do you know that? Because they have a Bible too. They have a, a book too. And my, here's what I'd say, if you're really that interested in it, go read it and then compare it to the Bible. Go read any of these other, of these other scriptures if you really want to and compare it to the Bible. They don't make sense. They're inconsistent. They have nothing like, the, the Bible has the imprimatur of being God-breathed. You read it and you find God there. When you read some of these other books, some of them are just pure nonsense. There are places where you're just like, what are they talking about? Scripture has stood. It is the most attacked book I can ever imagine there having been. And somehow we're still here. Not because we're stupid, okay? I'm not saying that I'm so smart, but I'm smart enough to not be here if the Bible was, was clearly wrong. And I cannot tell you how many people for how many hundreds of years have done everything they can to attack the Bible and it has stood. That is not the case with these other religions. Jesus Christ was here. He died. He rose again. That's a historical fact. And he said, who gets to get worshiped? And it's God alone. It's God alone. That's why. All right. Uh, is the New King James Bible the only correct version of the Bible? What is the difference between the Holy Bible and the New King James Bible? Nothing. So, most Bibles will say Holy Bible on them. Um, that's just referencing the idea that God, when, he, when, when the Scriptures breathed out by the Holy Spirit, it, the Bible was perfect. Um, we know that we have, at this point, um, some, what we'd call uh, translation, not translation, transmission errors, where we have so many copies of the Bible that sometimes there's a word, there's actually 400,000 instances of a word like and and or, or or there's not the right punctuation or something like that in some of these manuscripts. What, what we also know is that not one of those has, affects any, any, not, not one single one of those mistakes. 400,000 
Because there's so many, there's, there's, there's tens of thousands of copies. That's why there's 400,000 uh, differences, mostly punctuation stuff. None of them affects anything about what we believe, the basics of the faith. Um, and so Holy Bible just talks about the perfection of the word of God. The New King James Version is just a, it's just a translation. No, it's not the only translation. Um, in fact, I wouldn't even say it's necessarily the very best translation. Um, I like the New King James Version for preaching because I, I feel like it's very accessible. Um, I think it's correct, and I think it's very accessible. And so I use it for preaching. But the ESV, the ISV, um, I'd stay away from the newer NIV. Uh, not because I think it's all horrible, but there are translations that aren't good. Um, obviously, translation is a, is a skill set. Um, some translations, as like everything else, can get politicized. And so you start translating with sort of... The whole thing about the scripture and translation, translating the Bible from Greek to, um, to English or from Hebrew to English is your job is to take the Hebrew or the Greek and put it in English. Your job is not to take it through a filter and say, but does this sound the way you want it to? And then, and then put it into English. That's not the way you should translate. So uh, good translations are straight translations. And by the way, if you're, if you're ever wondering, there are resource, free resources on the internet where you can go and see, the, you see all the Greek that's there and that will give you definitions and uses in other, uh, in other Greek writers, right? Guys with names like Thucydides and things like that. And you can go see how that word was used. So you can, you can do some of the translation work by yourself if there's a verse that you're struggling with. There are ways to do that. Um, so that you can actually just see the original language and you don't have to worry about the New King James or the ESV or the ISV. All of those, New King James, ESV, ISV, I'm good with all of those. Um, and, and most of the other big translations, NASB and so on, are pretty good. You're probably not going to get too far off. I'd stay away from like the message, which uh, is not a translation. It's like a paraphrase type thing. And you're going to find like uh, recipes for cocoa Krispies and things like that in there. I don't, I don't know what's going on there, okay? There's this stuff that's happening and I'm not really sure what the deal is there, but it's not a translation from the Greek to the English. It's like, how would I say this if I was very flowery in my speech or something like that? But no, the New King James Version, to answer the question, is not the only uh, version. Next, is the Bible 100% literal? And if not, how do you tell when to interpret it literally and when not to? Great question, great question. Um, the Bible is 100% literal where it's literal and 100% figurative where it's figurative and 100% poetic where it's poetic. And, and, and here's how, and here's, it's, it's not that complicated, honestly, because if I gave you a book, just a, just a regular book, and I said, tell me what in this is poetry. Tell me what is trying to be history. Tell me what is, is using a metaphor. And you would be able to do it quite easily. In fact, if you read the scripture, it's not difficult to tell where the Bible's being all of those things. What happens is sometimes people want to say, I don't really like this literal part, this historical part, so I'm going to say it's poetic or metaphorical. A lot of people, especially in the last, in the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th into the mid 20th century, a lot of people went to sort of liberal theology, not a political term, more like progressive Christianity now, where they started doing a lot of, of that kind of stuff with, the, say, Genesis 1 through 8. And they're like, well, these probably aren't literal stories. You know, maybe they're just metaphors to help us think about it and so on. And just not sure. They're written as history. It's very clear the genre that's there. You cannot change it to metaphor because you don't like it or because somebody who's doing science says it probably didn't happen that way. 
Let me just tell you something. I'm not anti-science. I'm super pro-science. I love science. Science is not perfect. Which, and what I mean by that is scientists are not perfect. And so if a scientist says, yeah, I mean, look at how many things have happened. They said that King David didn't, never was a real person, that that was probably metaphorical. Oops, when they found the inscriptions to King David and were like, oh, I guess we were wrong. But I, I can't tell you how many of those have happened. Every single thing in the scripture has always been questioned until they do the archaeology and they go, oh yeah, that is, this is the exact place and the exact thing. Oh, here's the house. And you know, there's his, you know, it's, listen, the scripture is true. It is true. And where it's literal, where it's doing history, those things happened. Those are things that happened. Where it's doing poetry, that has a different purpose. The Proverbs, for instance, they have a different purpose. No, it's not history when it says, the lazy man did this thing. It's not like, oh, there was a lazy man right here who did that. It's obviously, it's a proverb. You know, what, you know how proverbs work. And th there are times where it's like, God is like, and we see simile or we see metaphor, right? Where God is, where he's, where he's showing us something through that. All of that is not very, there are very few places in the scripture where it's difficult for you to be able to tell. So all literal, in other words, all of it is trying to say something that is true or is saying something that's true. But there are different, it's a big book. There are different things within that book. And you'll find that in any book you read, by the way. Go read a book and you'll find places where the person's talking specifically, this thing happened. Then you'll find places where, where somebody is talking metaphorically, trying to make a point with a metaphor. All of that. We always, we do it all the time and we're able to do that. It's the same thing with scripture. Same thing with scripture. All of it is true. Some of it is intended to be these ways. That one of those places where people get uh, Confused about that is the first uh, eight chapters of Genesis or the first 11 sometimes, depending on who you talk to, which they're wrong about that. And then prophecy can be difficult because like, is this talking about a literal thing that's going to happen or is this a thing like this is going to happen? And the best way to go through that is with what we'd call a hermeneutic, which is a way of, of interpreting scripture and applying that hermeneutic consistently to the text to be able to understand this. So we have 60, how many? 67 uh, end times, hour, hour and a half long end times studies on the app. If you want to know what the Bible says about prophecy and Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation, so on, we, we walk through it. So we take the time to study through that stuff. You guys can go and check that out. It's on the app. If you don't have the app, I think there's like a QR code there. Download it. That's all free. Um, feel free to pay for it if you want, but it's all free. Um, so that, that can be more complicated. I do, I do find that um, when you're dealing with prophecy, which is, which is its own type of, of uh, literature, that that can be more complicated for some people. But most of the stuff, you'll know what's poetry and you'll know what's history um, very easily. So there you go. All right, what else we got? Uh, Shakespeare plays have been attacked since the time of their creation and are still here and popular. Does being attacked equate correct? Uh, I don't think Shakespeare plays have been attacked for being false, their fiction. And so, no, being attacked does not equate being correct. I attack things that are incorrect, usually. Um, the fact, that what I'm talking about with the scripture is that the Bible is attacked and stands up. And stands up, right? Shakespeare plays have been attacked in, in the sense that some people think Francis Bacon wrote them instead of Shakespeare and things like that. Those are what I'd call historical oddities. The plays themselves are just fiction, so you can't attack whether they're true or not. The Bible has been attacked saying it's not true and has kept standing up. It's not true. Oh, I guess it is. It's not true. Oh, I guess it is. That's what's happened with the scripture. That's what I was talking about. Because yes, that's a great point. Just being attacked does not make something true. Like, oh, it's been attacked a lot. It must be true. There really are unicorns. People always say there aren't. No, that's not how that works. Although I hope there are. Um, because how cool is that, right, John? 
Yeah. All right. He wears unicorn shirts sometimes. Whew. All right. What else do we got? Um, what is your stance on the responsibility of the community, especially the church, to help people who are struggling with gender dysphoria as the world tries to encourage the disorder? How do we practically help them? That's a great question and a very complicated one. Here's, here's a couple things. You always start with this. You are called to love your neighbor as yourself. If somebody has gender dysphoria, that's a legit disease, okay? It's a mental illness. It's like any mental illness where you are not experiencing reality in the way that reality is, okay? What you, what you believe or what you're thinking isn't consistent with what's true. That person needs your sympathy, your empathy, your help, your love, okay? The issue with gender dysphoria or transgenderism is that instead of giving those things and helping a person, which we do with every other mental illness, by the way, every other mental illness, when somebody says, I'm thinking this thing and we know that the thing they're thinking isn't true, we try to help them through therapy, through pharmaceuticals, through all kinds of things to help, to help that person to be healed because it's a, it's a condition, it's a physical condition that affects your mind, okay? But with gender dysphoria, what we've done as a society is we've said, nope, when somebody says, I am a woman or a man when they are not, what we do is we just immediately affirm it. That's the society now, that's the medical field. It's not just, it's not just like there are people who are like in this like wacky political place who are doing that. This is the medical, this is how they go. This is the dogma now. If you, if you have a kid, five-year-old kid, who says to the doctor, it's a boy, okay? And if you need to know how to understand how to check that, Look that up, okay? There's, there's some really easy ways to tell. In any case, it's a boy and says to the doctor, I'm a girl. The, the doctor is going to say, yes, you are. Immediately, has to. That is the protocol. Yes, you are a girl. Now let's talk about how, what we need to do as you get older to, to change your body, to mutilate and affect and take drugs on your body to be consistent with the delusion in your mind. And that's what happens, okay? So then they go through, and at a certain age, they're going to give them puberty blockers so their body doesn't work right. They're going to, if it's a, wanting to be a girl, wanting to be a boy, it's, they're going to get testos testosterone if it's the other way and so on. And you, and you mess up the body, right? You screw it all up. That's what's happening. So what's your job? Your job is when you see a person who's struggling with this, pray for them. In your heart, right there, pray for them. It, it, it breaks my heart. I cannot tell you, when I, when I go and I see somebody who's struggling with this, it breaks my heart, not just because they're suffering with it, but because other people are making it worse for them by telling them that they are going to be able to achieve something they can never achieve. You can't fight God, people. Who hasn't tried that? Anybody been successful? Not me. You can't fight God, and you can't fight his design and his creation. And so what, when you tell somebody, yes, you are, let's do this surgery, let's do this thing or whatever, because either I'm so worried that you're going to hurt yourself if I don't give you these things or whatever it is, what's going to happen is eventually they're going to realize I can't be this other thing because I wasn't made to be that other thing. The most I can be is a stitched together uh, facsimile, right, of, of what a man or a woman is supposed to be. It's very sad. It's very sick. So what I say is pray about it. When you deal with people who are struggling with it, show them love and care and affection first. Not your, not, don't come in and immediately say, you're not a guy, you need to blah, blah. That's not helpful to anybody. 
okay? When you have a mental illness and the person just tells you that your thing is wrong, that doesn't help. That's not the way to do it. What you do is you show them love and care and attention and affection, and then you lead them to Jesus. Because when they come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit will help do the work in their heart to open them up to hearing about who they are in Jesus Christ. And what we see now is we see all these people who are detransitioning. Okay, it's a massive thing. They're detransitioning. Lots and lots and lots of people who were told and affirmed and whatever, who have, many of whom have destroyed their bodies, who are now saying, I can't believe that I was 14 and everybody just let me do this thing. I don't remember, who remembers being 14? Too long ago. Like, I don't even remember, but I can tell you one thing I definitely remember. I was dumb. <laughs> like, and I don't mean dumb like I didn't have an intellect. I just, I didn't know how to make good decisions at 14. If I had said, I've decided I want to be a woman at 14 years old, my parents said, yay, we're going to be really popular on Instagram now that we have a trans child and, and, uh, and the people. That, look, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And then the doctor and whoever did all this stuff to my body. And then all of a sudden, I can't do the things a man can do once I turn 18 and realize that was a phase and silly and God made me be this. And now my body's destroyed. This is evil what we're doing to people. It's not evil to have gender dysphoria. That's just, a, that's just an illness. It's a physical illness that causes mental issues. That is not the person you should be upset with. The person you should be upset with are the people who are harming them. Yes. That's who you need to be upset with. That's who you also need to pray for that their heart would change because I don't know if you know this. It's a secret. Lost people, they act like lost people. I know, I know. So they're deceived. You know, they're not, try they're not waking up in the morning twisting their mustache. They truly believe this puts them on the right side of history or whatever. They really believe that. They're, they think what they're doing is right. They're just so deceived. It's a perversion of the truth, right? And so for the, for the transgender person, for the person with gender dysphoria, love, affection, relationship. Invite them over to your house. Show them care. Don't get worked up about their pronouns and all this kind of stuff. That's not, that's not the thing. The pronoun thing, that's more, of a, that's more of an issue between employers and employees who are being forced to do something. Okay, that's an issue of free speech. That's, a, that's protecting uh, the fundamental understanding that we have as Americans. That's a different thing. With an individual, just call them the name that they say their name is, okay? Because if they would have told you their name was Lauren when their name was, you know, when they were a guy and they said that my name is Lauren, you'd have been like, I didn't even know there were guys named Lauren. You just would have called them that. So just call them the name they ask and love them, and care for them, and pray for them, and pray with them, and lead them to Jesus. No one gets healed by simply being told that they're wrong. That's not how you get healed. Only God heals. Love these people. Honestly, we have to, guys. We cannot come off as something that we're not. We're Christ followers. We love people. We stand strong with the truth, but we love people. And so when you have the opportunity to be around people in communities that are unbiblical. Your job is to go to them and see God transform them. Jesus didn't go hang out with the tax collectors because the tax collectors were good. He hung out with the tax collectors to draw them to what was good himself. So when you are around those people, pray for them, pray with them, love them, build relationships with them, help them, be the one that's actually helping in their life. All these people who are like, go, 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 do the thing, they're not helping. What you can do is you can actually look to their real needs whether those are uh, physical needs or spiritual needs or whatever, and actually be somebody. Don't just stand on the sidelines and say, this is gross and sick and I can't believe it. That's true. It's true that it's an evil thing that's happening. 
that the society is starting to buy into this. But it's not true that these people, God doesn't love them. He does love them. And your job is to be his hands and feet and to love these people. So love them. Don't get worked up about all the political side of that. You can do that in the, in the voting box. You can do that you know, in, in when you're speaking on those kinds of issues about those people. But to the actual person who's suffering, think of them as a person who's suffering and who's deceived and do what you would do for any person who was suffering and deceived. Lead them to Jesus. All right. Hopefully that answers that question. It's 1118. I'm going to do one more and then we're going to take communion. All right. Uh, what purpose does the Song of Songs have in the Bible? Oh, yeah. Look, a lot, just like everything in the Bible. Um, it describes the intimacy of a relationship with God. And it describes a, a different kind of intimacy in the relationship between a man and a woman that God has set up and designed for a husband and a wife to enjoy. Um, it is a powerful, when you, when you think about the powerful uh, metaphor, if you want to use that term, of how strongly God loves us and how strongly we love him, it's not a sexual thing. That part of it's not a sexual thing at all. It's about, it's about desiring with every part of ourselves God. And then it shows within the context of a marriage how sexuality is part of a complete love, a full and total love and affection and devotion to one another that is, of course, anchored by God. It also has some very important things to say about waiting until you're married. Um, there's, a, there's a very uh, powerful message in the Song of Songs about not awakening love before it's supposed to be awakened. Um, so there's a lot in the Song of Songs. Um, I can't, obviously, I'd have to do some sermons on that. Maybe I will. It's just a little bit embarrassing. Some of it's like, you know, it's, I don't know, go read it if you don't know what I'm talking about.